at this time, I'd like to welcome Aaron Schellenberger to the stage, who is going to give a proper introduction to Linda. Erin uh, is a graduate of Messiah College and actually a former employee of the bookstore. We miss her very much. Uh, and she's now working over at Harrisburg Stamp Theater. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Erin. Good evening. Um, I just finished Linda's book a couple weeks ago and absolutely loved it, so I can't wait for you guys to hear her speak. Um, Linda K. Klein is the author of Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free, and the founder of Break Free Together, a not-for-profit organization that uses story exchange to help people claim their stories, their bodies, and themselves. Klein's work is a vital new faucet in the recent resurgence of women's studies. Having a minor in youth ministry from Messiah College, I cannot count the nights I've spent with distraught teenage girls, reassuring them that they are more than stumbling blocks for the boys in their youth group, that their relationship status does not affect their salvation, and that their self-worth is determined by their divine parentage, not the bathing suit that they wear on the church camping trips. I'm here to tell you that Linda's work is imperative because the damage of the evangelical purity movement in the 90s and early 2000s has had a poisonous trickle-down effect. It is still currently, right now, crippling girls my age and younger. But youth workers are not the only people praising Ms. Klein's book. <laughs> Her work has been featured by NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, Cosmopolitan Magazine, Elle, Good Housekeeping, Vice, the Chicago Tribune, New York Post, and other major media outlets. A regular speaker and teacher, Linda has presented on the TEDx stage and at major gatherings such as the Apollo Theater's Women of the World Festival. Today, she lives in New York City, where she can be found relishing her woman-only co-working space and walking her dog, Pearl, around the neighborhood. Please join me in welcoming Miss Linda Case Klein. So hello everyone, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I feel like very honored by this. First of all, this is a massive bookstore. I had no idea, I, I'm like kind of in love with this space. So thank you so much to my friend Ashley who was really excited about me speaking here and was like, this is the best bookstore, you absolutely need to be here. Thank you to Alex and to Aaron for having me and to the Midtown Scholar, it's really a thrill to be here. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about what we're gonna do. So I'm gonna do a little bit of a reading and then I'm gonna speak for a bit and hopefully not too long because I really would like to have a long period of Q and, um, I like to say Q and R instead of Q and A because I don't always have the answers, right? So hopefully we'll have more of a, a dialogue and kind of a back and forth at that point. Sound good? And then I'll be around for a signing. Yes, we're on board? <laughs> All right, cool. As a teenager, I went to the sandbox in the empty playground beside my church when I wanted to be alone. I dug my bare feet down deep, cooling them in the damp sand. God, I would do anything for you, I remember saying there one afternoon. Anything, I imagined God's reply. Anything, I promised. Would you become a missionary in a foreign land? God tested me. Giving up the lavish life of an actress that you dream about, I squeezed my eyes shut, and I pictured myself a poor missionary living in a small rural village somewhere on the other side of the world. 
In my imagination, I wore a thin cotton dress and my long brown hair whisked across my face in a way that could only be described as romantic. No, I shook my head abruptly. Not like that. God is asking if I'm willing to make a sacrifice for him, I reminded myself. I could become deathly ill from serving the sick. I might not have access to clean drinking water or bathing water. I might spend days working in the hot sun without any protection. I imagined my dress dirty and the skin under it covered in burns and unidentifiable wounds. And satisfied with this new image, I opened my eyes and I looked back into the sun. Yes, God, I promised. I would do that for you. Would you give up your parents? God continued. Yes, I said quickly. <laughs> I was 16. <laughs> would you give up your boyfriend? I winced. Who you think about all day and every night? God continued, who makes you feel so utterly alive every time he touches you, who you are sure is sin incarnate, even if he is born-again Christian and thus technically safe to date and sure. All you've ever done is kiss, but the way he makes you feel, the way he makes you feel, you know must be wrong. Yes, I whimpered. Yes, God, I would. Later that afternoon, I called my girlfriends for an emergency concert of prayer. I think that God wants me to break up with Dean, I told them, trembling. Not one of them asked me why. They didn't have to. After all, we'd learned together that there were only two types of girls, those who were pure and those who were impure, those who were marriage material and those who were lucky if any good Christian man ever loved them, those who were Christian and those who we're not so sure about. So... God wanting me to break up with a high school boyfriend who made my whole body scream every time he looked at me? Yeah, sure, that made sense. It's only now, more than 20 years later, that I can see another story beneath the only one my friends and I were able to see then. It's the story of me, a 16-year-old girl in her first real relationship, willing, no, wanting to be tested so she could prove to her God, her community, and herself that she was good. After all, my sexual energy, sometimes off-color humor, and the 50s pin-up va-va-voom of the hips I'd recently acquired were already worrying some in my community. If I wasn't careful, they warned me, I might just become a stumbling block. And maybe I already was one. In the Bible, the term stumbling block is used to reference a variety of obstructions that can be placed before a Christian, the concept is used in reference to sexuality just once. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Yet in the years that I spent as an evangelical Christian, I never once heard anyone use the term the way it's used here, in reference to the onlooker's lustful eye. Instead, I heard it used time and time again to describe girls and women who somehow elicit men's lust. As I've heard it said, sometimes our interpretations of the Bible say more about us than they do about the Bible itself. In junior high, the term stumbling block annoyed me. The implication that my friends and I were nothing more than things over which men and boys could trip was not lost on me. When half the guys stripped their shirts off and began a water fight at the youth group car wash outside the Piggly Wiggly, I thought it was unfair that it was me who got reprimanded for having my shirt sprayed by their hoses. 
but even as I bristled, I obeyed. I went home and changed into a dry shirt, longer shorts, longer skirts, higher back dresses, and higher neck tops. By the time I was in high school and I had my first boyfriend, I had been talked to about how I dressed and acted so many times that my annoyance was beginning to turn into an anxiety. It began to feel like it didn't matter what I did or what I wore. It was me that was bad. In the evangelical community, an impure girl or woman isn't just seen as damaged. She's considered dangerous. Not only to the men we were told we must protect by covering up our bodies, but to our entire community, for if our men, the heads of our households and the leaders of our churches fell, we all fell. Imagine growing up in a castle and hearing fables about how dragons destroy villages and kill good people all your life. Then, one day you wake up and you see scales on your arms and your legs and you realize, oh my God, I am a dragon. For me, it was a little like that. I was raised hearing horror stories about harlots, a nice Christian term for manipulative whore, who destroy good, God-fearing men. And then one day my body began to change and I felt sexual stirrings within me and I thought, oh no, is that me? Am I a manipulative whore? My girlfriends rushed over to my parents' house for the concert of prayer. We sat in a circle on the floor of my parents' basement, bowed our heads, and together asked for God to help me fulfill his commands to break up with Dean. When the last of them later filed out the front door, I walked to my bedroom, called Dean, and told him that we needed to talk. Dean cried. He said he didn't understand. I said I didn't either, but I was sure it was what I had to do. Five years after I broke up with Dean, it was no longer high school kisses that spurred my shame, but college attempts to have sex with my long-term boyfriend. Now 21, I had recently left my religious community, having determined that I was incapable of being the woman that they made it clear I needed to be in order to belong. I'd changed my mind about attending Bible college and began attending a secular liberal arts college outside of New York City. Yet when the lights were turned low, it was as though nothing had changed. The closer I got to losing my virginity, the more likely it was that the word slut would run through my mind on ticker tape. Eventually, I'd find myself in a tearful heap on the corner of my bedroom of, of my boyfriend's dorm room bed, tormented by the same fear and anxiety that had driven me to break up with Dean when I was 16. I'd left the evangelical church, but its messages about sex and gender still whirred within my body. Even after I calmed myself down and apologetically kissed my boyfriend goodbye, I couldn't let go of the lingering fear that we had gotten too close to having sex this time that I had gotten pregnant, and that my sexual sins would soon be exposed to the religious community I'd left, but was still desperately wanting to approve of me. Eventually, I'd walk to the local drugstore and buy a pregnancy test. I was still a virgin, but taking the test was the only way I could steady my breathing. Until the next time. I searched for books, articles, online communities that might help me understand what I was experiencing, and when I was unable to find any, I called up first one, then two, then several of my childhood girlfriends from my former church youth group, I told them what was happening to me, and then I sat in stunned silence as they told me they were experiencing many of the same things. The relief I felt knowing I was not alone sustained me, but my struggles continued until at the age of 26, I quit my job, drove across the country to my Midwestern hometown, and set out to find the others. 
So at this point in my journey in the book, um, I had left the community that I had been raised in and I had separated myself from the people who were actively shaming me and I had chosen actively to reject the notion that I should experience shame in the first place. And I thought that that would mean that I would be free <laughs> from the sexual shame and the fear and the anxiety that had haunted me up until that point in my life and that I had up until that point in my life thought should be haunting me, right? That that was a good thing. But what I discovered, as you heard here, is that it didn't go away. I didn't become free. That I had so deeply internalized the shaming that I'd experienced growing up that I actually didn't need people outside of me to shame me. I was more than capable of shaming myself at this point in my life. And I remember being really scared when I realized that because what it meant was that I didn't actually have control over my thoughts or my feelings or my body, right? I was responding to a way of being that I had been, um, that I had been taught, right? That I had been trained in and I couldn't escape it. And that was terrifying to me. I remember feeling completely broken um, feeling like I was never going to be a healthy person and moreover, like I was absolutely never going to get into a healthy romantic relationship. Um, and now that I had moved to outside of New York City and I was going to this liberal college, you know, where nobody had any idea what I was talking about, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> And I'd be like, I feel crazy. And they'd be like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, you sound crazy. Um, you know, I also felt remarkably alone. And so really it was out of a place of desperation in a lot of ways that I started to look for the others <laughs> that I started in the beginning was just calling up the girls that I had been raised with in my church youth group and telling them what was happening to me and then sitting with my jaw just dropped to the floor as they told me very similar stories from their own lives. And that became the beginning of this 12-year journey. I realized that if I was ever going to move forward, I was gonna have to go back, which for me literally meant going back home at the beginning. Actually drove back to near my hometown, moved near my hometown, and uh, spent a year calling up every girl who had been raised with me in my youth group who was now in her 20s. I was 26, so I was talking to people between 20 and 29, and asked them what their adult experiences were with sex and gender and sexuality. And I heard so many of the same themes from what I had experienced that it became this larger uh, journey around the country where I was talking to people who were raised in communities like mine, white evangelical Christian churches, people who were raised as girls within those communities. But there was a lot of variety among those people's life experiences, right? So we had those things in common, but some people were still part of the evangelical community, whereas others had left the community. Uh, some people were virgins. Some people had actually waited to have their first kiss at the altar the day that they got married, whereas others were having sex or had chosen to have sex outside of marriage. Um, some people were survivors, either of church-related uh, abuse or of abuse that happened outside the church. Some people were part of the LGBTQ community. Some people were straight. Some people were part of the, um, some people were trans. Some people were cis. There was so much variety, and yet in the stories of all of these categories, people in all of these categories, I heard these same themes. I heard about sexual shame. 
and fear and anxiety that for many people, certainly for me, was being held in the body and was actually manifesting in ways that mimicked post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, it was coming out in nightmares. It was coming out in anxiety that was sending some people to the hospital for panic attacks, right? Um, you know, it turns out I wasn't the only one taking pregnancy tests, so she wasn't having sex. I've heard that story now from many people, right? So all kinds of different levels of fear. That changed everything for me. <laughs> because if I wasn't alone, then it couldn't be just easily explained away as I was just bad, or I was just sinful, or I was just broken. There were too many of us for it to be that we were all bad, <laughs> that we were all sinful, that we were all broken. So I started to do the research around what was going on, right? I had, I had the beginning of the story. We'd all been raised in a similar community, and I had the end of the story. Uh, here was what our life looked like now, but I had no idea how we got there. Turns out, <laughs> well, first of all, let's be clear, you know, a shaming sexual ethic has been long established in our culture and in our world, particularly toward women and girls. So completely separate from this conversation about religion, you know, this was an established foundation long before I was born. However, in the late 80s and the early 90s, something really distinct happened. So it turns out in 1991, here I am a seventh grader, I'm joining this youth group, I'm excited, you know, and little do I know that I'm actually becoming um, a member of one of the first classes of adolescents to have grown up in the purity movement. This is a white evangelical movement that really started in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, that was designed to protect young people, uh, particularly coming out of the AIDS crisis. Remember, the AIDS crisis was top of everyone's mind. Um, so protect them from AIDS and from other STIs and from teen pregnancy, but the attempt was to protect them using shame. Uh, really a tool that is shame. So let's talk a little bit about shame is for a second. So, so anybody who is a big Brene Brown fan, anybody big Brene Brown fans? Yeah, okay. So y'all could break this down for the room if you wanted, but, um, but, but I'll do it because I got the mic. So, um, so, so though many of us talk about shame and guilt as being essentially interchangeable, uh, the researchers who study shame will actually talk about guilt as this feeling, I did something bad and shame as this feeling, I am something bad, right? And the tool that the purity movement used was, in its essence, shame. We didn't talk to people about what they did. We talked to them about who they were. Were you pure in your essence, clean, holy, good, lovable, you know, worthy Christian? Or were you impure? Lucky if any good Christian man ever loved you. You'll have to prove to us whether or not you're a Christian, right? All of these things, right? There's this, there's this larger binary. So that was the operating tool that this movement used. Um, and really, this movement very quickly, uh, well, first of all, let me say the ways that you could lose your purity. So the ways that you would move from pure to impure. Certainly, you know, you could lose your purity if you um, made a sexual choice. But this was about more than just being abstinent before marriage. It was truly about being sexless, right? In your, in your mind and in your heart and in your body. So you are completely absent of sexual self, right? Before marriage, at which point you will then suddenly flip your sexuality on like a light switch and everything will be amazing. 
So, but if you're a girl or you're a woman, you can lose your um, purity in another way as well. You are not only responsible for your own thoughts and feelings and actions, you are also responsible for the thoughts and the feelings and the actions that others take toward you that you are said to have inspired by the way you walk or the way you talk or the way you dress. So it's an even deeper experience if you're a girl or a woman within this culture. Now, the purity movement very quickly turned into a purity industry. Does anybody remember purity rings? Yes, lots of people remember purity rings. Um, purity pledges, yeah, like the like the where you sign a promise, yeah. Uh, purity themed books, yeah. What are shout out some names you remember? I kiss dating goodbye, so popular that it uh, has its own acronym, IKDG. <laughs> the bride wore white. Doesn't that title just say it all, right? <laughs> yeah. What else do you remember? Passion and purity, man. Yes, that's the one I grew up with because you know I was at the beginning of this movement. So, so, but that that book is is uh, continuing strong, right? Anyone else? So, a slew of purity themed books, but then there's also purity themed events and concerts and rallies and T-shirts and keychains and you know you name it, right? So, the industry really and curricula to be sure, right? So this is showing up in small groups, this is showing up in sermons, this is showing up uh, you know, in Bible studies. You've got purity themed Bibles even, right? Um, so, so you've got this industry that is working with the movement to saturate the lives of people who are raised within the purity movement with this message. And let's remember that evangelicalism is 25% of the country. So to saturate, you know, the young people who grew up in a quarter of the country is no small thing, right? But it also intentionally brought a more diluted version of this message into society at large. Uh, you know, specifically lobbying the government, which allocated billions of dollars to abstinence-only before marriage messaging, um, some of which trickled down to uh, evangelical purity purveyors who brought the very same things that I got in youth group into public schools and into international aid. Right? So we really saw a large spread. And the result is that we have young people who are raised within this movement, who a generation of young people really, who are struggling. <laughs> who are struggling with fear, shame, anxiety, and PTSD-like experiences. And you also have the purity ethic, which undergirded the purity movement and which had been around before the purity movement. Uh, really, I would argue, our default national sexual ethic. Right, I often ask people, so I lead um, uh, workshops sometimes on sexual ethics, and I ask people, okay, what is an alternative sexual ethic, right? If a, if a sexual ethic is you know, a way of uh, understanding something that allows you to make a decision using it, right? You've got the purity ethic. What else is there? And I was shy this. What else is there? What alternative sexual ethic can you think of? Safe sex, yeah. Wait, where was that? Oh, you're in the way back, yeah. <laughs> oh, you look like a plant, Aaron, because you were like, yeah. Aaron was not a plant. But I will say that generally speaking, um, you did come to that way faster than anyone else. But you're right, that would be an ethic. Anything goes as long as you're safe, right? Um, so, but it generally it takes people a really long time to even consider the possibility of an alternative sexual ethic because we have so much shame around sexuality that we tend not to talk about it, which means that we tend not to really develop complex alternative ethics. So you've got in the background of many of our minds and certainly the background of society, a purity ethic, which is well established, that is uh, shaping our responses to many things. So if you want an example, just look at how rape victims are treated, right? 
look at how quickly they're asked, what were you wearing? Or if you were with him out that late alone, didn't you expect this to happen, right? There's, there's this knee-jerk, somehow we're going to make it about you being impure, right? So these are kind of, this is sort of the background. So this is, this is a, an ethic that existed before the movement but was ratcheted up by the movement. Um, and let's talk a little bit about the movement and where it's at right now. So 2008, the movement did wane uh, pretty, pretty dramatically because we had a significant curbing of uh, federal and state money for absence-only before marriage messaging. Uh, however, the funding has been going up again since 2016. So we may be seeing a return of the purity movement, but what I would like to say as a moment of hope <laughs> is that I think that this time things are going to be different because now we have the purity generation. You know, people who were raised with this stuff, people who were adolescents and teenagers and young adults in the late 80s or to the early 2000s who are really telling these, um, these stories about their lives that are the warnings of what this stuff can do to us, right? So I would like to hope that things will be different. And I will say that if I were going through the things that I was going through in this period that I read you from my book today, I do think that I wouldn't have had to put myself through an intentional 12 years of narrative therapy to heal, which is essentially what I did through the interviews, right? It was very effective. It only took 12 years. <laughs> um, because now there are books, right? And now there are uh, websites and articles. So we now have uh, the Church 2 hashtag. Do you all know this one? Yeah. Emily Joy and Hannah Pash created the Church 2 hashtag to document people's stories about the church's contribution to sexual violence. We have the No Shame movement. People know that? Laura P. started this great online platform where people can share stories of leaving behind purity culture teachings. Um, we have the Exvangelicals community. Yeah, okay, I knew there was, I heard on Twitter there were going to be some people from the Exvangelicals community here. Yeah, so Chris Stroop and Blaine Chastain, Blake Chastain, don't tell, um, you know, started a community that is online and offline for people to deal with them a variety of issues, but this is one of them that shows up a lot. So there, we are in a different place now simply because we have a generation of people who, are, who lived to tell the stories, <laughs> right? So let's not make the same mistakes again, right? This is my charge to us all. And uh, for my part, I'm really a big believer that that's actually the only way that we do heal. I, I tried the healing on my own thing before I went back to do the interviews, you know, between when I really started trying to heal myself to when I started the interviews. It was a five-year period. I tried a lot to heal on my own. Um, it was incredibly ineffective. So I really do believe that we only break free together. So I started this organization that goes by that name, Break Free Together. You heard Aaron talk a little bit about it. We use story exchange, right? So essentially the thing that my interviewees and I stumbled onto together, we try to bring to a number of different places. And one of the things that we do is we work with churches and with seminaries um, to help them have community conversations about sexuality in which they shift uh, some places are make, needing to make this shift from a place of answer you know, do this, think this, feel that, to a place of question. What are you doing? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? How do we understand, right? How do we wrestle with this moment together? Um, and one of the other things that we do is really simple, but I wanted to tell you about it because uh, it's something that you can take part in if you'd like, which is that I actually just bought a P.O. box 
And people can send me postcards with their stories of what they were raised with around sexuality, what they learned, and how it's impacted them in their adult lives. And you know that's something that I did because I heard a lot of, of people talking about wanting to be part of the conversation, but not wanting to have their social identity attached to it, being really nervous about anonymity, right? This movement is filled with people who are anonymous, right? Who are creating fake email addresses and fake names and you know all kinds of people who write books under fake names, people who host podcasts under fake names, people, you know, this is, this is the sensitive stuff. So, so I started the, um, the P.O. box so people could just send me postcards with their story and then I posted up on the Breakthrough Together Instagram page. So I brought some of these postcards that I sometimes bring to events that are right there. So I guess I'm gonna do the signing on this side and we'll, do the, we'll just have the postcards over there. So, so if you'd like to fill one out, I would encourage you to do that and I'm gonna offer sort of three things that I would suggest you could do with it. One is you could um, take it home with you and you could fill it out at home or you could fill it out here and just have it at home with you as something to hold. Um, another is you could leave it here face down so that nobody in this space reads it and I will then post it on that Instagram Breakthrough Together page. Or you could leave it on that table face up so that when people are coming for the signing, they might actually be able to uh, benefit from your story, right? So we write our stories or we tell our stories for ourselves oftentimes, um, but we, we put them out there for others to see for others, right? So those are your three options for the postcards if you would like to be part of that. If you do leave them face up, people will read them here, but also I will still put them on that Instagram page. Can we give it up for Linda? Thank you, everybody.